0: A content warning. This series deals with dark themes including child and domestic abuse, sexual assault, and content that is inappropriate for children. Please be advised.
1: Our definition of lying means the intentional deception of those who had a right to know
2: it was a case of bestiality involved a number of animals cows goats he had to go and identify the animals and these animals were slaughtered and buried with front end loaders
3: Six, seven children watched him throw the fetus into the furnace and said this is what it would be like to go to hell
0: I'm Tim Elliott. You're listening to Inside the Tribe. This is Episode 5, Keeping Secrets. Last episode, we learned about the origins of the Twelve Tribes and how Gene Spriggs, a former soldier and school guidance counsellor, turned a small group of curious young Christians into a fundamentalist sect with communities all over the world. Now we'll pick up again with Mark and Rose, whose time within the tribes had been tumultuous to say the least. Rose had had a stillborn baby boy, which Mark then had to bury. Rose's family, meanwhile, had made every attempt to see her, but been repeatedly thwarted by the leadership. It's January 2006. Henry's meeting with the 12 tribes in Australia hadn't gone to plan. He'd managed to talk to Rose for a grand total of 10 minutes in the courtyard at the Picton Farm. The next day, however, Rose told him that they couldn't meet again. The gifts he had chosen and brought from Europe for his nieces, nephew and sister, they were all thrown away. Now he was flying home to France without her... Unsure when or if he would ever see Rose again. Meanwhile, life inside the Picton community continued. The gatherings, the work, the confessions. Mark and Rose were having more trouble with their son, who was now 13. So just a heads up here. Their son didn't want to take part in this podcast, although he was happy to provide background material. He didn't want his name used either. So we'll call him David. As Mark and Rose have pointed out, David was not subservient to the group. He was a strong-willed kid with ideas of his own. This made him a target for the elders, who labelled him willful and ostracised him. The fear was always that David's inherent wickedness would make other members of the community stumble. At a gathering one night, an elder named Huck and I abruptly announced that Mark and David were cut off. He then quoted a passage from Deuteronomy where it talks about a rebellious son being stoned to death by his parents and the village. Cutting David off was like stoning him symbolically.
4: My Did son wasn't up? allowed to talk to any other uh, other child. Really? They made my child feel like he was crap, really, because so see, he wasn't even allowed to walk through the house where we were living at some stage.
5: Well, he wasn't allowed to play with any other children. Like he's imagined something mouldy and rotting and trying to avoid... Like a bad apple, trying to separate it all the time.
0: Noon and the other elders also decided that Mark and Rose should be separated. Rose would stay on the farm, while Mark and David would be sent to help build the yellow deli in Katoomba. They worked there for three months, building an awning, doing the roofing, making windows and cabinets... Mark and David also dug a basement for the business and laid the foundations. The pair were then sent to run the community's bakery in Lidcombe in Sydney's west, over an hour's drive from Rose and the rest of the family. Mark and David woke at 5am every day and worked till 11 o'clock at night. Mark remembers making 10,000 buns a day, weighing the ingredients, mixing and baking... They would clean the ovens, mop the floors, and pack up the bread for the next day. They slept on mattresses on the floor.
4: We were in the bakery, basically we were just in the bakery, sleeping in a sleeping bag in a, in a, in a, like a storeroom there for a while. We were sleeping there for a while until they decided, hey, that's not right, you know, so we ended up moving.
0: They were soon installed in a house in Sydney's west with a couple of other bakers, kept away from Rose and the other children at the Blue Mountains community.
4: I was cut off from supposedly all the brothers and sisters. I wasn't allowed to go to the gatherings. Even weddings. Weddings, we were ousted out. We weren't
0: allowed to participate. In Australia, the legal minimum working age is 14 years and 9 months. It's pretty normal to get a job at a supermarket or in a cafe or pizza place. Hi, I'd like to order. You can get around the minimum age requirement with a special permit, typically for kids working on movies and on TV, or in a family business. The tribes around the world have always leaned into the idea of theirs being family businesses. It's in keeping with the idea of communal living and working toward a shared income.
6: So that they can do the work, along side by side with their parents, and it's part of their um, academic education as well.
0: That's the tribe's lawyer, Jean Swantko, appearing on ABC America, defending accusations of child labour. She's painting a picture of ma and pa operators, but that's misleading, even 20 years ago.
7: I just remember it being...
0: Tessa, Matt Klein's daughter, remembers a gruelling schedule from a very young age.
7: I remember having to work in like a big kitchen, like an industrial sort of like kitchen, chopping carrots or cabbage or whatever vegetables with a whole heap of other women just not really talking but just working or in like a can't... They make like these organic, I don't know, beeswax candles or whatever and I remember dipping the wicks in like hot wax to like make the candles. I um, must have been, yeah, like four or five maybe. And funny that... <laughs> To me, those memories were like the calmer moments because, you know, you had a task and as long as you sat there and you did that task, you were safe, (laughs) I guess. Very quiet, very quiet. No talking, no music. I mean, I'm sure people made mistakes, but I think, like I said, I was very focused on not making a mistake.
0: Mark had been careful too, but his patience was wearing thin. He and his son had been slogging their guts out for 18 months doing everything they were told. They were model tribe's members, yet they were being treated like outcasts. Enough was enough.
4: I literally thought fuck this man. You know, the fuck it, you know? Let's go. So, me and just rocked off from the community. I'm leaving. So, we just started hitchhiking
0: they'd walked out with nothing but some spare change.
4: We got to some phone and we were able to make one call and I called <laughs> I was just looking in, uh, where was I? I was in Park Lear or something, you know, about west near Blacktown. And he says, can you come pick me up? And my son was going, where are we going? And I says, look, well, we're just going to go to my brother's place. He's living up in the mountains.
5: Israel, <clears throat> as the sentiment is giving me the news that my husband uh, hasn't come back from the bakery, At the same time, he tells me that it's my fault. Like in the same delivery package kind of thing, you know, like making me feel really guilty that I've depressed him, that I've made him feel uh, bad and that that's why he's left. So I don't even have a chance to even think. And because I'm so brainwashed, I can't even think critically. And I, I trust this guy, you know, he's a leader. So I felt so terribly guilty that I've made my husband lose faith So, I felt like, what can I do to help? It's my fault, so I've got to do something to make it right.
0: Israel, the elder, and Rose got in a car and began driving around madly in search of Mark and David. Rose told Israel that Mark had probably gone to his brother's house.
5: I could guess where he would have gone because I think he doesn't have any money. Where is he going to be?
0: Soon after, Israel and Rose pulled up outside Mark's brother's home and went inside. Mark and David didn't put up much of a fight. They were exhausted and broke. Israel then put them in a car and drove them back to the farm at Picton.
5: And I thought they had done a good thing. yeah, Because you know, he's losing his faith. He's going into a really dangerous territory of losing faith and being under the control of Satan. You know, yeah. so I'm there bringing him back to God. you know.
0: <laughs> in Rose's eyes, she had saved them from eternal damnation. In theirs, it was a return to purgatory. The tribes had now spread its wings worldwide, with communities in England, Argentina, Spain, Brazil. All of these communities were by and large self-supporting. Germany was running its lucrative solar business. Brazil had its mate farm and a long line of organic products. The U.S. communities were doing a roaring trade as well, with construction companies along the East Coast raking in millions of dollars a year. But the Americans were about to experience a series of disturbing incidents, with repercussions both inside and outside the tribes. In the early days of the sect, when everyone was at Vine Street, the group had lived more or less like one big family, More tolerant, more accepting, more generous in their attitude toward each other. But somewhere along the line, that all changed. Certain rules started appearing for how men and women should behave toward one another. Huge importance was placed on female modesty, with women having to wear long dresses down to their ankles and head coverings as a sign of submission to God. Expressions of sexual attraction of any kind, even a couple hugging or kissing in public, was strictly prohibited. Sex between singles could potentially lead to excommunication, or forced marriage. Even within marriage, sex was a matter of concern for the elders. By the 2000s, the rules coming out of Hiddenite were beginning to skew toward the eccentric even extreme.
1: They have classes or teachings on you know, how to have sex and what not to do, what to do, when to do it.
0: David Pike, a former member, recalls even masturbation being regulated.
1: You know, you're not supposed to masturbate. Spilling the seed, the, the, the sin of Odin. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> Because in the Bible, once you've masturbated, you're unclean for 24 hours and you're supposed to leave the camp, which means leave the Bible. So you can't do that. (laughs) Yeah, it's just crazy.
0: Sinister Colucci joined at the age of 21 as a single man.
8: They have what's called social meetings, which is the married couples that have been in the community the longest. They're the ones that decide uh whether someone could get married or not, and they decide to put people on waiting periods, which is like a it's like a like a courtship, but without any physical uh contact It's like you can take walks together, you can talk together, which normally single people are not allowed to do those things but if you're on a waiting period then it's okay, but it's also closely watched by the rest of the community they watch and listen to you talking to each other, and they carefully watch your interactions to decide you know, if you're going to make a good couple together. And then towards the end of the waiting period, they decide whether you should be betrothed or whether the waiting period should be called off. And it's their decision, not yours.
0: Clearly, dating men was impossible. There are stories of young teens being forced into a waiting period to prepare for marriage after sharing a kiss or holding hands. There came into play a strict gender apartheid, even for siblings. Oz, who grew up in the American communities in the 2000s, couldn't even swim with his sisters.
9: Oh, shit, it's going a whole problem, because, you know, the guys and girls, same pool... I was like, I don't give a fuck, dude. Like, this is ridiculous. It's me and my sisters going swimming in a fucking pool together. What the fuck? And we didn't even make it to the pool. It was like there was somebody like, sitting there like guarding it or something.
8: Well, one of the things I was watched for was um, there was a young woman that was uh, a guest in the community And they had her working alongside me every day. And after working together with her for a few weeks, it became clear that she was interested in me, you know, more than just a teacher. She asked if I could be her boyfriend and it was really tempting to me. And at at a certain point we had snuck off to the woods together and I put my hand on her back. And I felt instantly guilty and I ran back towards the houses and uh, I passed the barn where one of the leaders was milking the cows and I told him what happened. He instantly got really angry through the milk pail and started walking down the street like praying to God or Yahshua and later that night I was called into a meeting. I had to admit to the leaders what I had done and then after that i had to admit to the whole community what i had done i i literally just yeah i literally just put my hand on her back and they made me feel like that was a a mortal sin like i was a horrible person for doing that it was like i said it was consensual like she asked me to be her boyfriend so it wasn't and we were adults we were both in our 20s (laughs) but they treated it like it was this Horrible sin, like a sexual assault or something.
0: This extreme abstinence led to a spate of disturbing incidents on some of the 12 tribes' farms.
2: A lot of things that, um, you know, there were a lot of things that went on that um, just the common disciple like myself wouldn't have known about, wouldn't have heard about, they would have kept it hush-hush and it would have been dealt with behind closed doors.
0: That's Sean Penny. Sean moved from Australia and ended up for a short time in Cambridge, New York. That's where he remembers a scandal so big, it couldn't remain a secret.
2: It was a case of bestiality, and um, you know involved a number of animals on on the farm and and other farms, and you know he was repenting, but it was you know it was a it was a big deal. I don't know if he just fessed up or whether he was caught, I I actually have a feeling he was found out. You know, so um, the whole community is gathered. I don't even think the boy was present at the meeting. I think his family was present. It was explained to us what had happened. And it was explained to us what was the result of that um, regarding the animals. You know, there was biblical references. You know, we, we talked about what God, you know, has prescribed for this type of act. He was led back to the, to the farms that, um, you know, he'd performed these acts and he had to um, identify those particular animals. So on the, on the farm at um, Cambridge, you know, there were cows, there were goats and there was at least, at least one other farm involved. Um, I don't know if there were more than that.
0: By the mid-2000s, bestiality had apparently become a significant problem. There are unconfirmed reports of it occurring in several of the 12 tribes' communities around the world, including in France, Brazil and the US. Indeed, in 2006, Yonek issued an edict that members had to kill any animals they'd had sex with.
2: That would have been a pretty heavy thing to do. And the, you know, the animals were, were buried. Um, you know They used farm machinery to dig the holes and, and bury those animals.
0: In 2022, the Denver Post quoted a former member estimating that there had been 10 confessions of bestiality worldwide and at least 30 animals slaughtered. It's thought the incidents were never reported to police. The tribes, it seems, were determined to remain unaccountable. Indeed, the tribes had novel ways of keeping people quiet, especially those who'd been sexually abused in the group.
1: They would do long-term torture of the boys for weeks on end with nothing but bread and water. And they'd be told two or three times a day to recant their story if they refused then they'd get spanked. So you had physical and mental torture, and sometimes it would go on for weeks, two weeks, until either the parents broke and left, or the kid recanted their story, then they'd act like it never happened. There's some fucked up shit. (laughs) Yeah. I got dark real quick.
0: This code of silence made the tribes a rich hunting ground for pedophiles. One of them was a man named John Thomas, a teacher who worked in the US communities from the 1990s to the mid 2000s. Courtney, one of the original tribe's members who we met last episode, remembers John Thomas well.
3: In every place where he taught, there were students who came forward and said that he was doing things to them, and it's not one or two, it was like three and four boys coming forward and saying, you know, he's sodomizing them, he's having them do things that they didn't like, you know, and always John Thomas would say, well, you know, they're lying because they didn't like the grades I gave them, or they're lying. You know, they, he would have all these reasons why they were lying. He was never disciplined. It was always the boys were cut off, disciplined. If they were older than 14, sometimes they had to be sent away.
0: Courtney's son was molested by another man in the community as a 12-year-old. The boy didn't tell his mom until two years ago. He also explained what his abuser had done to discourage him from speaking out.
3: There were several of us in in Burlington that had uh, miscarriages, or I think one was actually a stillbirth. But instead of burying the fetuses, they threw them in the furnace and burned them. And so the teacher had this brilliant idea that they would show the middle children what it would be like to go to hell. There was like six, seven children in that group that he brought in and watched him throw the fetus into the furnace and said this is what this is what it would be like to go to hell. A place of eternal fire. So then when he told that he, he kept saying the things that he was saying that he would be thrown in the furnace f- believed him.
0: When Courtney found out, she was devastated.
3: If a child came to me and told me of a situation like that, I would go, fierce Mama Bear. And in hearing him say, I saw you, you know, go to bat for so many people, why didn't you go to bat for me? And it was like, Well, I didn't know it. I, did, I thought you were fine. I didn't know I needed to go back for you. It, it's a very traumatic thing when you realize that, that, that your son went, you know, one of your children went through things like that and they didn't feel like they could, could tell you.
0: Nobody chooses to join a cult. Nobody willingly goes into a group knowing they'll be subject to the kind of trauma that Courtney went through.
3: Those people join that group believing it was going to be a wonderful place to raise children because they were all so cohesive and loving. Um, so you've met them. They come across as very... And they are. They're very warm and caring people. However, they totally believe the way that they're living their life is the way God would want them to do it, which is not true.
0: Kim is in her 50s and lives in Florida with her husband. They collect pieces of driftwood and grow orchids and other plants inside them, selling the installations to garden centres. You might remember her from episode 2, where she talked about the rate of stillbirths in the 12 tribes.
10: It was The ones that were really troubling for me were the late trimester ones.
0: When she joined the group in 1998, Kim was working as a midwife and had six children. She was also escaping an abusive relationship. At that moment, the 12 tribes seemed like a safe haven.
10: They ran one of the beeswax candle shops where they have the globes made out of the balloons with pressed flowers. You walk in the house and you're just hit with the smell of beeswax and honey and it was so warm and glowy and I just felt like I could relax and that I would be safe and my
0: children would be safe. That was in North Virginia. But just a few months later... Kim was sent to another community in Cambridge, New York. Life was much harder in Cambridge. It was colder and there was less space. Her children didn't have shoes that fit them or even beds to sleep in.
10: And I had like an 18-month-old with me, still nursing, six children. And we slept on the floor for months. And this was a whole different experience. It was just not okay.
0: A lot had changed in the tribe since Island Pond. A small, down-home church group had evolved into a full-scale money-making enterprise, and nowhere more so than in Cambridge, the site of the Common Sense Soap Factory.
10: The name of it was Cambridge, but sometimes they called it Camp Bridge or Cramp Bridge because many times we'd have like over a hundred people living there and they had to take shifts when they would sleep, where? Like we had single brothers that would sleep in our room during the day and they would work at night and then we would go into our room at, during the night and there would be people sleeping in the basement, single, usually single people. There would be people out in three feet of snow with tents that would work all day or work all night and they would work all night because they were warmer at night and then sleep during the day in their tents.
0: Kim found some of the rules a little peculiar, one in particular. We need to
1: train our children in everything, even in the use of toilet paper.
0: So
10: we had to sit down in this meeting and, and we were told we could only use two sheets of toilet paper. If you went number one, you shouldn't use any toilet paper. If you went number two, you could use two sheets. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. It was just, yeah, it was insane. This is when I started really thinking something's really wrong. What have I done? Something's really, really
0: wrong. She realises now, of course, that she should have taken her children and run. Instead, she did the only thing she thought would make her safer.
10: I was single. In the community, it's a status thing to be married. You know, you don't get your needs met with your children. And my children were growing out of their shoes and all sorts of things like that and the people who were married had their needs met and we didn't have i didn't have clothes for my
0: children around late 2000 kim met a man who came to visit cambridge
10: i met somebody who came to visit from another community and he just flat out said something's wrong with this community so then i was like oh So it's not the whole 12 tribes, it's just this community. That's the guy I ended up marrying.
0: That guy was Jeff Leonard, a 44-year-old with jet black hair and a ponytail. Jeff spent most of his time working on the Avani, the tribe's yacht, later named the Peacemaker, which they would sail up and down the coast evangelizing. She and Jeff entered into their waiting period and were married a year later. That's when they were sent to help build a new community in West Palm Beach, Florida. It was a promise of warm days and sunny skies. Better times were on the way. The honeymoon didn't last. In June 2001, police with guns and a dog stormed Kim's community. All of
10: our children are going to be taken away from us. Parents are going to be arrested.
0: The elders told her to hide the children.
10: I just remember I was walking my children out the back gate into the woods, and I passed by an elder, and he was with his children, not his wife. And I was like, can we go with you all? And he said, you're on your own. And that was like, wow. Okay. Now I really know where we're at. Really, when it comes down to it, we're on our own.
0: Kim hurried with her children into the woods behind the house. There were plenty of places to hide, and the kids knew them all. To them, this was a game.
10: And I came back, and there was one child that was in the barn by herself, and she was the only child, and her parents were already out of town. I hid her in a cabinet, and I said, here, you stay here.
9: This was in Palm Beach, Florida.
0: Oz was there too. And
9: so they snuck us all out the first day, and the van came, picked us up, and we hid out. They basically didn't want the social workers or the cops to see any of the kids, because potential bruising or signs of abuse or whatever. So I thought that was pretty funny, you know, as a six- or seven-year-old being hauled away through the bushes and shoved into a van, you know, a couple vans with all the kids in that whole commune and taken to the beach to hide out while the cops and the social workers searched the property.
0: Oz remembers being coached by the elders about what to say should they be interviewed by the police.
9: My family was pretty well behaved and just did what we were told. So in situations like that, they would just have kids that were kind of trained to put on a show and say whatever they're supposed to say, you know. I remember even me personally being interviewed by one of the social workers and the police asking questions and... We weren't personally, as kids for the most part, trying to hide anything, but they just want to make sure that you know what to say.
0: After the raid, the West Palm Beach property became a no go zone for many of the community members, including Kim, Jeff, and the kids.
10: We made our plan, and the families that were living in tents and things like that, and a couple other people were set off to other places. And that's what happened with my family, too. My grandmother had a place and for Mars, and so we just stayed there for a little while until everything settled down.
0: A month or so after the raid, in mid-2001, Kim was contacted by the elders. Apparently the police kept returning to the West Palm Beach property searching for a six-year-old girl. The elders told Kim that the girl had pinworms, and that the cops were investigating the parents for neglect. The elders had sent the family away, ostensibly until the girl got better. In the meantime, they came up with a plan to get the cops off their back. They would have Kim's healthy daughter stand in for the girl with the worms.
6: She
10: looked a lot like my daughter, they're only a year apart, and they looked identical at that time frame. Well, my daughter came and took her place. That was their idea, you know. They're like, "Well, they look alike. If we go down, we're all going down. We're going to all lose our children. All of our children are going to be taken away from us. Parents are going to be arrested." And she's safe. She has pinworms. Okay,
0: we'll deal with the pinworms. The elders even arranged for Oz's dad to act as the girl's real father.
9: My dad ended up pretending to be her dad because they looked very similar, you know, most people there do that are older, because they have grey hair, beards and stuff, so they just had my dad pretend to be him and then kind of, I don't know if he showed him our family or their family or whatever.
0: Oz was baffled by all this. He'd been raised to believe that lying was a sin.
9: Especially them of all people because they're so adamant about being honest and straightforward.
0: In the tribes, however, the concept of lying was all relative. As Yonek put it,
1: Our definition of lying means the intentional deception of those who had a right to know.
0: Kim thought she was doing the right thing, but she was also being played. As she would learn years later, the police weren't looking for the little girl because they thought she had pinworms, but because they believed she'd been sexually abused.
9: And then they came back later after the dust was settled and actually did interview every single one of us kids individually. But at that point, even at the beach, whatever, while we were hiding out, when they came back was a scheduled time. So it was kind of rehearsed by all of us where they told us what to say and what not to say pretty much. They scare you into thinking that these people are your enemies and they're out to get you. And if you say what we're telling you to say, then you're safe. If not, everything's going to go south.
0: After the West Palm Beach raid, Kim, her husband Jeff Leonard, and the children were sent to live in Arcadia, the Twelve Tribes' other property in Florida. It was March 2002. Arcadia was a bit of a shanty town, with many families living in tents. Kim and Jeff had been married for about a year, but the relationship was already rocky. Jeff was often being sent away to work in other communities, and so he and Kim hadn't seen a lot of each other. Jeff had also become a little unpredictable. Anything Kim said might annoy him or trigger an outburst.
10: Every morning, he would want to wake up the girls. He was like, you you get ready for the gathering, I'll go wake up the children. I was like, okay, whatever, you know, fine. And he's always, has always been that way if he was around. And I got dressed and I was ready to go and then I heard that voice. Like, it was the same things he had just said to me in the same things he was talking about doing and I was like outside the tent and I'm like what the heck is going on and it just so happens that the tent was like zipped down maybe this far because he had gotten in and zipped it up.
0: Kim approached the tent and looked in.
10: He was basically fondling, molesting the girls as they were waking up and was, just went from one to the other.
0: Those little girls are now adults. One of them, who we're gonna call Cassidy, remembers a series of horrors.
6: I just felt betrayed by Jeff. He was supposed to be, I looked up to him. Now, the things that he did, I. it would be like early in the morning, so it'd be waking up to it or going to sleep to it or, or, you know, so it's really like, so there was a lot of nightmares in the community and out. Um, and there's things that I remember clearly and, and I, I've, I've wrote it all down to the police. So it's all there. I don't remember half of it. <laughs> Thank God so they paint a pretty picture but as a child you think the things that going on is normal you know the the relationships that you make are you know the good relationships and all that's where the betrayal like it, it break you know that what kind of broke me as a child
0: kim was devastated the community
10: i had trusted them so much i was so stupid I trusted them so much. <laughs> I didn't flip out in front of him because I was terrified, and I called my sister. You know, because I had a phone line in my tent. Can't I? Need, I, I didn't tell her what happened. I said something really horrible has happened. I just I have to leave. So I'd already written a letter to leave and everything, and I just walked up the hill, and I told. The elder's wife that I had to talk to her and I gave her the letter I said I can't even talk I mean I just started bawling and crying and crying and crying and I was like I can't even talk I just this is what happened and she read it and she just sort of puts it aside and she says women of Israel don't act this way and I was like what and I mean, I'm sobbing. I can't control. I can't, I mean, I was just sobbing and so I couldn't stop crying. I just was so shocked. How could I have let this happen? How did I not know these things were happening? You know? And she said, I'm I'm gonna go get my husband. And she went, talked to her husband. She finally, she she came back and she said, My husband talked to him. He said he didn't do that. And I said, you bring him here. Just bring him here. So that's what happened. And I looked at him and I said, you can't lie about it. You know it's true. And he just went down to his knees and he said, it's true. It's 100% true. And he said, you should do with whatever you want. Call whoever you want. I deserve whatever.
0: Jeff wrote a confession But the elders in Arcadia didn't call the police. Instead, they sent him to the community in Brunswick, a small city on the coast of Georgia, south of Florida, where he would live with other families and their children. Meanwhile, Kim and her kids returned to the West Palm Beach compound. She wanted a divorce.
10: Maybe a month passed, and there was a meeting, and they said at the gathering that I was free to do what I wanted. I wasn't allowed to talk about the fact that he molested my children. No, zip, no talking about it. But I was allowed to say he was unfaithful and I was allowed to make a choice of what I wanted to do. I had to wait six months to get a divorce, fine. Get a divorce in six months, that's what I told everybody I was gonna do. And six months come comes around and then they said no they said you have a sexual spirit that you passed on to your children and that's why this has happened to them and you need to repent and you get back together with them
3: gene has this thing of if you have a problem with pedophilia or homosexuality or porn uh, the answer is to get you married there were so many people that i thought i looked up to as godly men and then found out that they weren't but they kept on getting forgiven I knew the only reason why they were defending Jeff was because they wanted him there because he held electrical license and he didn't mind working long hours and he was an efficient worker. But they were, you know, Anak was wanting to get it all swept under the rug so that Jeff could keep on working.
0: In an attempt to reunite the couple, the elders sent Kim and four of her children to Brunswick, where Jeff was working on the 12-tribe ship, the Avani. Another member, David Pike, happened to be working on the ship when Jeff arrived.
1: Actually, he was on the boat when they were separated with me. We were working. And I didn't know this at the time, what was going on, but I found out later. They actually had a meeting about this, about what went on, and they actually absolved him and made her go back with him, made her go back to live together with him and her kids.
6: We were sentenced to live in isolation with him to fix our family.
10: I guess I feel like a lot of people said, why did you even go back with the man that molested your children. So there was a lot of guilt. I didn't explain myself to anybody because nobody understood what I had to do. I had to leave, to be able to get that many children out with no income, without a husband, especially in that situation.
0: Kim remained vigilant. She watched Jeff like a hawk and would never allow him to be alone with her children. She told the kids to wear full clothing to bed instead of the usual T-shirt and underwear. If an elder wanted Jeff to punish them, Kim sat in and watched.
6: All the adults potentially could discipline you, but I was afraid of Jeff. Not in a general sense, actually, really, actually afraid of him. But yeah, we children were fair game, really.
0: The situation became untenable. Kim had a 10-page confession letter from Jeff admitting that he had abused her children and now the tribes, the people she thought were family, were still protecting him. Six weeks after arriving in Brunswick then, she made the decision to leave.
10: We just walked out and it was October and we were in flip-flops and we just started walking and I just kept walking. It was bizarre. I mean, I made sure, like, all our rooms were clean, but I couldn't take anything with me because it would look like I was taking something.
0: It was mid-morning. Within a short time, they were on a road heading into town.
10: There was a man and a truck, and he slammed onto the brakes and he jumped out of his truck.
0: Call it divine intervention, call it dumb luck, but the trucker felt compelled to help. He didn't ask any questions, he just dug into his pocket. And I think he gave me 50 bucks. Kim took the money and walked to a nearby taxi rank.
6: Next thing I know, we're in a taxi cab and Mom's asking us to get down on the floorboard and hide.
0: Kim had a plan. Two years earlier, she'd met a man who was visiting the tribes, who had noticed something in her face. Something that was not quite right he offered her a lifeline.
10: I am the oldest son of the man who owns the youth hospital in Brunswick. If you ever need to leave, we'll be there for you. So we stayed in hammocks and tree houses and we did do dishes and, did, and we got tours of the gardens and the, all the different projects they were working on. For me, you know, that kind of stuff was just, like, exciting. And it was distracting the children enough where they weren't frightened of anything. In the meantime, I was making phone calls, trying to, like, what am I going to do? So I really tried to just block everything from them from being frightened, because they'd already have been through it enough.
0: Kim's daughter Cassidy, who was then 11, remembers being too scared to fall asleep in case the family moved and she was left behind.
6: And no one was talking to me. No one was telling me anything. I really didn't want to go back, but I just I just needed to know.
10: Social services did, you know, come through for us eventually, but they won't if you're homeless. And we were homeless. I didn't have a husband. I was just leaving a cult and I literally didn't have a job, we didn't have clothes, we didn't have food. You know, it was really hard. It was really hard. So my dad said I could stay at his place.
0: Kim and the kids spent the next year moving between family and friends. By early 2004, she was back on her feet and had moved the family to Florida where they could finally rent a home of their own.
10: We sold plants and then we ended up in a huge market. We ended up in a huge space where it was like 150 feet and we had fruit and vegetables and plants in a coffee shop and the children were working with us and we would just grow and make the plants and make the driftwood pieces even then.
0: One day, Kim got a call from a woman who had just left the tribes. The woman told Kim that she knew what had happened with Jeff and was concerned that he was still living with children in the community. If Kim wouldn't report Jeff to the police, she would. That's when I
10: called them. I was not going to do that to my family until we were stable and my children weren't going to be taken away from me.
0: Kim told the cops that she was worried the tribes would try to hide Jeff. At the time, Jeff was working on the Ivanie, which was docked at a wharf in Brunswick. Technically, this made the Ivanie part of a different jurisdiction, and so the cops staked out the ship. When Jeff disembarked, he was put in handcuffs. Jeff was charged in March 2004, but maintained his silence. Meanwhile, the prosecution gathered witnesses, including Cassidy, who was then 13.
6: I ended up writing down my statement and giving it to the police at the police station. They were talking about the children going to testify, and I'm like, I I will. I'll testify. I'm scared, but I want to lick him in the eyeball, and that scares me, but uh, I'm still going to do it. I I will do it. (laughs) I was ready to go on that stand and talk.
0: but getting other tribes' members to cooperate was more difficult. The tribes didn't recognise the court's authority, only Yashua could judge. Then, someone came forward. It was Courtney, who had become friends with Kim in the tribes' community in Florida. Courtney was still a member. She knew she was taking a huge risk, but her conscience wouldn't allow her to stay silent
3: how the children were affected was enough for me to not question it.
0: In her deposition, Courtney confirmed that she had read Jeff's confession.
3: I was there holding Kim's hand when when Jeff was confessing to her and apologising to her about, you know, messing up their marriage because he couldn't keep his hands off the kids.
0: When detectives asked the elders about the confession, they said Jeff had only admitted to having had impure thoughts.
3: I was saying things that went against their testimony, you know, it had to be reconciled because what I was saying was not what they were saying.
0: The elders told police they weren't sure where the confession was, or if they even still had it. Kim seemed to remember that it had been kept in a filing cabinet in Arcadia police obtained a warrant to search the property. Only when they got there, the cabinet was gone.
3: That's how we know or suspect that someone in the police department was being paid to warn them because it was moved so recently the indentation was still in the carpet.
0: As prosecutors told reporters... Investigators
9: have had difficulties with the 12 tribes... They have taken steps to impede the investigation.
3: There was never any remorse. It was like they wanted you to back off. They couldn't discredit me, so they tried to intimidate me.
0: Courtney was hauled into a series of meetings where the elders tried to pick holes in her story. She and her husband were then summoned by Jean and Marsha Spriggs, who sent the couple on a bizarre mission, to visit Jeff Leonard in jail, where he was being held before trial.
3: Gene wanted me to confront him to see if there was any remorse in him. I think if there had been any remorse, then Gene would have had hope for him to be able to repent. That's their thinking.
0: There had been at least three other convicted pedophiles who had shown remorse and been allowed to live back in the community, encouraged to remarry and even spend time caring for other people's children. Those experiments had failed. In any case, when Courtney went to see Jeff, there was no tearful confession.
3: Made a trip down there to visit him in jail and confront him about the things that he said in front of me that was really it was really intense because his eyes were just dead you know there was no there was just no emotion you know it was like there was no remorse and I mean he flat out just said that Kim was a bitch for taking the children away and wouldn't let him have his way with them if he could have killed me he would have, and he wouldn't have lost an ounce of sleep over it. That was the kind of look he was giving. We were there, like, maybe an hour, and then we left, and we went to uh, Jean and Marsha, So we went over there, you know, and we both gave them our, you know, report.
0: We're not suggesting the tribe's legal counsel, Jane Swanko, had any direct knowledge of the child abuse, nor that she personally made efforts to thwart the investigation. Indeed, the tribes declined to post Jeff's bail, which was set at $250,000, or provide him with a defence team. In the end, Jeff pleaded guilty. He was sentenced to eight years probation, having already spent four years behind bars in Florida. Courtney had been staunch throughout.
10: She had my back. In a way that no one has ever had my back. She risked everything. She literally is the only person in the community I know that ever did a deposition.
3: After that whole thing with uh, with Kim and that whole thing in, in Chattanooga, I don't think we were in any one place more than six months. And they let it be known that I saw something, I'm going to say something. So after that, we started moving around uh, a lot more often. They were careful who we were in the same house with.
0: The Twelve Tribes is hardly alone in harboring pedophiles. But for a relatively small group, it's seen an unusually high number of offenders.
3: I can easily count over 20 pedophiles I have known in the community after the fact.
6: The community did have a way to intimidating, being quiet about things, or sleeping under the rug is what I like to
0: say. Next time, the tribes enter a new chapter when Harmek betrays Yonek.
2: It so really we gave me a tight squeeze. And that, that was the beginning. That, that's the, when the whole thing really, really got going.
0: Meanwhile, Mark is keeping a secret from Rose, one that will redefine their relationship and test their love to its limits. You've been listening to Inside the Tribe, hosted by me, Tim Elliott. My co-writer and producer is Camille Bianchi. Editing by Mark Wright of Term 6. This is a DM podcast production. We've also used some third party TV and print material through the series, with details on those in the show notes. If you or anyone you know is affected by any of the subject matter raised in this episode, you can contact Lifeline for crisis support on 131114 if you're in Australia, or the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline on 10273 TALK if you're in the US. Contact information for other services, including support to leave a high control group, can be found in the show notes.